Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Show. This is the Liberty Mom Show, and we are the original Secretaries of Defense, Defenders of the Homeland. I am Pamela Smith, and Delane England will be joining us shortly, and I have an amazing candidate running for state school board. Her name is Allison Williams, and I have known her talk about a defender of liberty. Um, we are just honored to have you on the show today, Allison. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, for those who may not know who you are, will you just give us an overall introduction of yourself and what inspired you to join a state school board race? That's a pretty heavy responsibility. <laughs> it is, it is. Um, so um, I think one of the most important things about me is I'm a mom of five beautiful children. Um, my whole world revolves around them, obviously. And um, I've always been interested in politics. Um, my degree is in education from Brigham Young University. But it wasn't until I was um, raising and teaching my own children and Till I started to think really deeply about what is my philosophy of education? What are all the differences between the different um, philosophies out there? And um, I, I started to formulate uh, stronger ideas about that. And I was really concerned um, when my oldest was beginning school to learn about Common Core. And um, as I learned more about that, I decided that wasn't something that would be positive for my children's education or for our country as a whole in terms of a com competition of ideas and um, learning real history and uh, rich language arts and things like that. And so I started to um, kind of lobby and work against that. And I think that's how I first met met you and a, and a bunch of other liberty-loving moms. Um, and, and most recently, this uh, position opened up on the state school board. Um, our current board member who's been there, he's been fantastic, decided to run for the Senate, and the seat was open. And I just, I just couldn't let that um, opportunity pass me by without stepping up and at least being a part of the conversation about what is happening in education that is affecting our families so directly. Wow, that is amazing. Now, it was Common Core that I came to know you and appreciate you, how you can articulate so well what was happening. And you were just this young mom. So how old is your oldest? Because you're, I mean, Common Core has been around for a while. So how long have you been on that, the home front, protecting the home front? Yeah, we're coming up on 10 years of this Common Core fight. Um, my oldest was just finishing kindergarten, and now she's 15 and, and going into high school. And so, yeah, it's been it's been a long uh, time. The good part is that uh, 
it's been long enough that people are seeing the results, um, especially as our kids are entering college and this generation of kids that's been raised under Common Core and they're, they're beginning to realize that it, it hasn't been everything that it was promised to be. And I'm hoping that that will translate into some will to finally make significant changes to that. Well, you know, it's interesting that even the formulators of Common Core are admitting uh, Bill Gates himself said, we won't know for a decade. And now he admitted, admittedly um, states that, yeah, it's a failure. Yeah. But that change isn't always for the better because sometimes change is just, we all are looking for a change, but we have to be very cautious in what will be presented next because- Exactly. There's always you know, the new fad that's going to yeah. replace the old fad. Um yeah. And and sometimes or a lot of times it's just the same uh fundamental uh philosophies repackaged under a, a new name and made to sound like a new thing when it's really the same old thing. <laughs> well, you know, when Ma Martel Menlove was the state superintendent during this time, he basically was saying, Really, Common Core isn't that much different. We're using all the same charts we haven't changed anything on the under we've just renamed it and so i think that they are definitely making you know that will definitely be a change um just a repackaging like you just said i think that's perfectly stated so um tell me the differences between i mean when you are running there's usually something that stands out that's different than your opponent you just had a and um a debate um, recently, and and you said that it was really astonishing. How um, compared to your um, opponent, what's the difference? What would you say is the most striking difference between you and he? So, um, my opponent, Randy Booth, is currently my local school board rep, and in the school district where I live, where my children attend school. And, and he's been there for the last 16 years. And so over the years, if I, as I've had concerns with um, Common Core, with the testing, when I wanted to be a part of reviewing the new math books that they were choosing to go along with Common Core, I was trying to be really engaged as a parent. And um, I don't feel like I, that it was, that our local board was as open to that as I had hoped. Um, and uh, Randy definitely supported Common Core at the time and was supportive of the tests and supportive of, of whatever the state office of education was um, promoting at the time. So it was, it was really surprising to me when we talked just this week in our debate um, that he was, uh, gave so much praise to parental involvement as the solution to our issues and, and really criticized the tests and how they're not helping us um, help our students. He talked about how assessment is um, a tool to know where our students are and even and quoted a podcast that I'd given earlier. And so I was really, you know, on the one hand I was encouraged because I, I felt like, um, you know, no matter who wins the race, he's on the record with some of these things that have been important to me. And on the other hand, I wondered in the back of my mind, hey, you've had 16 years to even just take a, a vocal stance against some of these things. And that that hasn't happened. So um, I, I hope it's a true change of heart. 
Um, but that that traditionally was the difference be, between the two of us. <laughs> you know, oftentimes we have expediency that drives us. And because now it's becoming more well, obviously, it's, it's a very well-known fact that Common Core has failed. I think maybe that might be the thing, but at least he's on record saying that he is against what you have been fighting for the last um, 10 years. So, so. Right. And I, and I want to make it clear. He's, he's always been accessible and I, I do believe he's genuine and in, in his intentions to do what's best for the kids. Um, but over the years we have had these differences. So um, yeah, that was a surprising change. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, we are coming up on a break. Is there something that you feel like is the, is it parental involvement that is really your driving force? Is, is there something that really stands out that you could say, Hey, and we can bring it into the next segment that you are really focusing on? Yeah. Well, I do think parental involvement's a key. We're the primary stewards of education and, but you can't have parental involvement when decisions are being made thousands of miles away. And that's the fact. So. Absolutely true. So um, I'm going to bring on um, Delane. Delane has joined us. So I'm going to bring Delane England in and um, she has a, she has a question to ask Allison. Allison, I just wanted to know if you see on the rise, some curriculum that is going to be more appropriate that you feel is going, that you're excited about, that you think is going to really address many of the issues that we've been talking about? Unfortunately, what I see on the rise is even more non-academic focus in, in the schools. And I think unless parents wake up to this and start demanding that we reprioritize some of these core subjects, um, it's just going to get worse. Yeah, I think that's what I'm seeing as a teacher and as a parent. I'm, I'm not seeing anything better. I just keep seeing the, the federal involvement and the new things that are coming on. Uh, of course, the curriculum is being created for the entire nation and not just our state. And so we're, it's hard to have autonomy here in Utah. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. Thanks for listening to Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. We're so happy that you joined us today. This is Delaine England with Pamela Smith. And we are so happy to have a great special guest with us, Allison Williams, who is running for the state school board and in Utah. And Allison has been, as you've heard, on the forefront of education. She is a mother and she is uh, just a vigilant at wanting to be clear and sure about what we are teaching our children. And she has done an amazing job. She is an amazing person and amazing, an amazing 
champion for our education system. So we're very blessed to have Allison running. And Allison, I would like to talk about the testing. When they came out with Common Core, they also came out with this adaptive online testing. And we, several of us, we spoke with our Speaker of the House at the time, Ray Hughes, and he was a representative and then became Speaker. And we explained to him these ties and connections to, to Common Core, this computer adaptive testing. And what would you say are some of the really big problems with the computer adaptive testing? Um, so the biggest problem with the test is, is what we're using it for. <laughs> um, so we are trying to use a single test to evaluate student progress and to evaluate our teachers and to grade our schools. And that alone is not a valid uh, use for any test. You can't validate a test for more than one purpose like that. So um, as a result, they try to do all these kind of um, manipulations with the scoring. And the end result is that we don't get a clear picture of any of those things from this test. Um, there are other other problems even with the content of the test. But I see that's the primary issue right there is a misuse of testing to begin with. Do you think that a test that the student never knows what they got right or what they got wrong and a test that the teachers never know what the student got right and what they got wrong, does it have any value for anyone? No, I don't think it does. I think without seeing the context of, of what you have missed, um, especially after being on the review panel and seeing some of the errors in the test, I, I, um, I don't think it's useful um, you know, what does it mean to you that you're a three out of a four in, in English or you, you know, they, they assign a number that has some general ranges of, of ability, but, you know, compare that to um, a, a, a paper test or another test where you can see somebody's work or see what they did. Um, I can look at my child's math test at a glance, see this was a one-time error. This is a mistake they're making um, over and over again. Um, and I just get so much more information by having the context there, being able to see their work than I do from someone saying they got a four, they got a three. There's a summative <laughs> score. No context. So as a mother, how do you feel? And I can address this as a teacher when, when you, when a child and a student doesn't know what they got, what, and got what, what they got, excuse me, what they got right and what they got wrong. What impact do you think that has on a child or a student? Um, I've seen really negative effects, um, not just in my own kids, but with other kids and my extended family. Um, I, I won't be specific for privacy reasons, but someone in my immediate family circle um, was a, a top math student at a, at a high school math class, was doing really well. Um, she didn't do well for whatever reason on the um, SAGE math test, the end of year test. And I, I think there's probably a lot of factors that could go into it. But because there was a, a discrepancy between her in-class performance and the test, the teacher said, you just didn't try. You just, you don't care and you didn't try and, and kind of shamed her about it. And, you know, I walked into this family member's house with her in tears on the floor and, 
And I thought, you know, the teacher has no context or basis for saying that it was a, an assumption. And what I know about, um, what I know about the student is that she's very conscientious. She would never um, not try. But I also know how confusing uh, some of the math problems were that even if you knew the math, trying to answer them correctly in the context of this um, computer environment was difficult. And so, um, and how do you fix what you can't measurably, uh, what is not measurable? That yeah. is such a, that is, that fosters insecurity in and of itself on both sides from a teaching standpoint, from a student standpoint, from a school standpoint, from a collective school standpoint. That is really, it's like boxing in a ring blindfolded. It's yeah. really hard. Yeah, it destroyed her confidence. It, it really um, disrupted her relationship with that teacher of trust to, to continue in that class. It was a really negative experience that didn't have to be that way. And, you know, I'm a little bit disappointed that the teacher would choose to take that route, but I understand the pressure at the time. That was before we had worked to pass legislation to not have the test score reflect so directly on the teacher's grade, right? Um, and so the teachers were really under pressure to to extend the pressure to the kids because it affected their um, employment directly. And I, I really think that was, I'm glad that we've at least taken a step back from that. Um, but I still see the pressure there because the school grade is attached to it and the schools are putting pressure on the teacher and the teachers are putting pressure on the kids. And it's, it's just become a really toxic um, cycle. I, I think that is not, um, not benefiting our students at all. Yeah, I think I see students when they are sick, when they are experienced this testing and they never know what they got right and what they got wrong. They're very confused because they're they're either like, well, as far as I know, I got everything right, or they're as they just are left with such bewilderment and such confusion because they don't really have any way to gauge that. And and it really is education in itself to take a test and then see, oh, this is what I know. This is what I don't know. Because without a test, you really don't know what you have learned and what you know and what you have incorrect. So getting that information back, I think, is just critical to students. And it's just mind-boggling to me that our all of our year-end tests, we still at this time are not giving that information back to our students. I, I agree. That's been my experience, too, with testing, that when I could see what I missed and the context that I missed, I could see either that, oh, I was really off or that um, maybe I didn't communicate my answer well. Or, you know, you really see and you learn from that. It is a learning experience. Um, unfortunately, the the people who are pushing this are comparing this to a college entrance exam that, you know, you don't get the same kind of feedback from a college entrance exam. But I think that is it's is such a terrible comparison to make when you're talking about second graders versus someone who's tr trying to enter college. I, I don't think that's an appropriate paradigm to push all the way down to grade school level. Absolutely. So do you see any as on the school board, do you feel like you would have power to do some reforms on this testing? So the one thing that the school board can do is they can um, they write the policy that goes along with um, the laws. And so there are laws that protect parents' rights. And I think in the past, the school board has written policy that has gone beyond what the law intended and has actually inhibited parental rights. 
wow, that's scary. Do Does the state school board have the power to get rid of this testing? Um, not directly, no. It would be working with the legislature. And now that it's part of our state plan that we've we've applied to with the federal government, it would take some cooperation there. Um, but like I've been working on all three sides, and I, I think that it's key to have people on the school board who are supportive of that. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, so do you think that the part of this problem is the federal funding that we receive from the federal Absolutely, government? Absolutely, 100%. Okay, well, that is very fascinating. So we are going to take another break, and we will be right back in just a minute. So thank you so much for listening to Loving Liberty. Welcome back to the Loving Liberty Radio Show. This is the Liberty Moms Show, and we are the original Secretaries of Defense, Defenders of the Homeland. I am Pamela Smith, here with... Elaine England. And our amazing guest, Allison Williams, who is running for District 13 of the State School Board. So... Thank you so much for being with us, Allison. Tell us, what area does District 13 take in? What is that area? So I am down in Utah County. Uh, My district covers the northeast part of Salem, um, the east side of Spanish Fork, most of Springville, all of Mapleton, Covered Bridge Canyon, um, most of Provo, and uh, uh, the southeast part of Orem, up to about the the Costco in Orem. So it's a really big district. That is a very large district. Okay, so since you decided to be crazy and run for the state school board, tell us what your priorities are when you're on the board. So my number one priority is that uh, decisions need to be made closest to the student by those who know them best. And as most parents sense and teachers sense, that has um, increasingly moved away from the students, um, especially over the last 10 years as we've nationalized um, curriculum through Common Core standards and tests and aligned technology. Um, And I, I think that we need to push back against that. And we, we absolutely can, we have sold this right for grants it's it's not a requirement that we do this and and uh we can push back against that um i feel like every candidate says they're for local control um but as long as we're supporting these national agendas we are working against that goal um secondly i really would like to restore autonomy to teachers and reduce reporting requirements. There was an audit that came out in December of 2019, just this last year, that uh, showed that uh, the typical LEA has something like 330 reports, either to the state or the federal government. A lot of them are redundant. There's only 180 days of the school. So um, if that's not a a picture of kind of the bureaucracy, the top heaviness that we can improve, I I don't know what is. Um, And I think this would 
would help impact teacher retention to let teachers do what they love and teach without so much micromanagement. Um, and, and that is a, an important thing. Um, as we have experienced in this most recent health crisis, I think it's become glaringly aware. I hope people have become aware that no matter what we do in terms of technology, no matter what we do in terms of funding, um, it, it all revolves around what happens, the interaction between the teachers and whether they can communicate with the parents and, and we're, if we're on the same page. So um, that's the key for me to focus on. Um, a, a third part that affects the first two is that the amount of money that's allocated edu to education is less important than how much of that actually gets to the classroom. Um, I just mentioned that a lot of the restrictions that we have for what we do um, aren't because of laws were passed, but because we've accepted or applied for a certain grant or that the funding that comes from federal funds is it comes along with some conditions. And we are not right now tracking how much it costs us to comply. So we go after a certain pot of money. And from what I can tell from an informal study of it, um, a lot of these are costing us more to comply than we get. It's a net loss. And I think it would be a great gain if we could forego some of those. Um, but I think that the data would, would have to be made clear for people to understand that. And that goes along with with tracking these um, expenditures better. Um, another priority I have that I always have, I know I've worked with both of you on this, on this area is student data privacy. And um, I have a little bit of background in the tech sector and um, I work specifically with database management and data and I know how, um, difficult is it is really to, to say data is private. Um, and we, we have a long way to go, especially as we have more and more third-party tech companies supporting our students in different education, especially during coronavirus. We saw just a, an explosion of, of that, right? My kids were expected to log on to five different platforms in one day. Um, every single one of those vendors has different privacy agreements and most of them are not um, private. And I think if we are going to introduce things into the school, we have to have some standards for data privacy that the vendors need to agree to. Um, and parents need to be made aware of, of what the data privacy guidelines are when they allow their children to access tech in the schools. So that's a priority of mine. And then finally, we've kind of already touched on it a little bit. Um, is just, I feel like the quality of our curriculum and the focus of our schools, um, uh, having the primary focus of our schools be academic has been eroded a lot through some of the nationalization. Um, we've, we've seen some of the negative effects of Common Core. We've adopted national science standards now. Um, and I think social studies standards are coming up next. Um, and, and we've just been kind of on this, um, on this, uh, path to continually ad adopt and nationalize everything. And I think that's been a mistake. I think we can see clearly that it's been a mistake and I hope we can stop and reverse. Um, the other part of that trend is that we're setting standards for things that aren't even academic. Um, it's called social and emotional learning or SEL. 
There was uh, like 30 pages dedicated to SEL and the most recent authorization of the education, uh, the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is the the act that established the Federal Department of Education. It was recently reauthorized, and a lot of it was um, dedicated to um, psychological profiling and a, a focus on the schools as changing and measuring people's mindsets. They use really good sounding words like, you know, we want to teach kids integrity. We want them to have grit and resilience. And, and I think when parents hear that, they think, oh, yeah, those are, those are all good things. But when you think about the government teaching and measuring those things, you should maybe be a little bit more um, wary about what that means. Um, I know one English class in Alpine School District they had the kids do a little social and emotional learning self-evaluation. And it just had questions like, I always do my best on every assignment. I never turn an assignment late. I always do this. And the kids were supposed to rank themselves. Well, of course, my friend's daughter, who has integrity, didn't feel comfortable saying she always did everything perfect. And so she ranked herself lower. And then she was sent home with this grade that said she lacked integrity. And I was I was so offended by that. I think that's the exact opposite of what integrity means to me. Um, and, and not only do we have kind of crazy twisting of values when we attempt to do this in the schools, but we detract, we are not, we're not even succeeding at the basics of um, reading and writing and, and math. And we're trying to um, turn our schools into um psychology centers and medical and social engineering centers. Yeah. And um, anyway, I am opposed to that. And I want to raise awareness and, and stop that train in its tracks. <laughs> wow, Allison, that is huge. That's a pretty great list. I mean, it's a big list and a great list of things that you would add. And that is exciting that you would even consider being there. Um, I, I want to ask you, do you think that it's, do you think that it's realistic for Utah to give up the federal funds in order for us to have autonomy as a state? Do you think that's realistic? Do you think we can do it? I don't think there's will for it right now because it's just looked at as that's a, that's a lot of money. And even when you can say it's 9% of our overall funding, but they're dictating 90% of our um, rules and regulations to me, that is an unfair trade-off right there. But as I said, I do think if we could actually track what it's truly costing us and make that case, I think there would be a stronger will in the legislature and among parents to say, you know, certainly this isn't a gain. We're losing money as well as our freedoms. I think the latter is more important, but unfortunately that former, that first argument needs to be made um, in, to affect policy. Allison, so what can, if somebody wants to help you with your campaign, how can they get in touch with you? What can they do? So um, my email is um, Allison, A-L-Y-S-O-N at boat, allisonwilliams.com. I have a, a Facebook page and a website. It's just voteallisonwilliams.com. I'd be happy to share all those links with you. I don't know if you have um, a website too. But there's only uh, there's only a week 
left of, of voting. So just sh- just share the word sh- um, with your friends. If you have any friends in my area, I'd love to talk to anyone by phone or answer their emails if they'd like to know more. Welcome back. You are listening to Loving Liberty Network, and this is the Liberty Mom Show. This is Delaine England in with Allison Smith. <laughs> and we have had a great conversation with Allison Williams, and we're going to just shift gears here a little bit. We're sticking with education, but we're going to talk about something a little bit controversial, to say the least, and that is Chinese immersion. So most of the schools in Utah have at least been offered the opportunity to have their children take Chinese and immer- Chinese immersion. And for most of us, I mean, it sounds really exciting. It's like, what would be so wonderful to have your kids go to school and learn a second language? We know that learning a second language is really great for the development of the brain. It opens up so many opportunities in life to, to children and adults when they get to be adult head, the opportunities for business and and just so many opportunities around the world. It's a great opportunity. And I've seen a lot of my friends enter their children into Chinese immersion. So what I want to talk about, what we would like to talk about is, is this a really great thing? Is it a great opportunity? Or are there some things that we should be concerned about? Pamela, people can't see and probably don't know. You don't have a very strong accent, but tell us about your origin. My mom, your DNA, my DNA, my mom is full Chinese and Chinese was her first language. She's Cantonese. Um, Her, her father came from Canton, China, and my grandmother was born and raised in San Francisco. Her family came over in the 18, the late 1800s from mainland China, again, the uh, Guangdong province. And so anyway, I have been learning about my genealogy, and it is so interesting. When my grandma passed away about 20 years ago, I had this great desire to learn my heritage. I had gone to China. My husband also speaks Mandarin Chinese. My mom speaks Cantonese. But my husband wanted to go back, and we went to mainland China. And I will tell you, I was expecting my third baby, and that was no vacation. That was like going behind... It was like a barracks, all of Shanghai. When we drove into Shanghai, it was late at night and there were like bulbs, light bulbs that lined the road barely. There was no city lights and it was all gray and dingy. It was so oppressed. There were soldiers and there was poverty everywhere. And so I hear that Shanghai is much different now, but when I experienced it in 87, it was amazingly destitute. In fact, when we landed in Hong Kong, the we applauded when we landed. We There was such oppression that the whole entire plane erupted in applause when we landed in Hong Kong. We felt different. So I love my Chinese heritage, but I also, when my grandmother died, I read Wild Swans. I've read China Cry. If you haven't read these and The Red Scarf Girl, those are amazing books that kind of tell the culture of the cultural revolution and also the culture of the Chinese. And the Chinese, I will say, there is no word in Chinese that translates to privacy, personal privacy. 
When I heard that, I understood my mother a lot more because my mother is a red, white, and blue girl. She wears red, white, and blue in December. You know, she is, she taught for the Freeman Institute, but my mom, as far as like the doors were always open. We just had to have our doors open. My mom is, you know, that, that line, there was no real line and it gave us understanding, appreciation, but still there is, there is not a privacy. So when you think about Chinese immersion, people coming over here and they are raised for generations after the Chinese culture, the cultural revolution totally destroyed all of the the, you know, they, they destroyed, we went to China, they take you to a temple and everything was broken. Well, that's what's happening in America. They're breaking down all our monuments. Um, Chiang Kai-shek went to Taiwan and anyway, it was left in ruins, but now they are trying to create goodwill and teach, teach Americans Chinese and, and have this industrial reason why we should be business business will grow great if we have Chinese that's where the next business opportunities are but really it is not I don't believe what is what we are being told is real and what I see as a very scary I would say scary thing happening is we have teachers coming over from mainland China who have been raised in communist country their entire life and they are teaching immersion of the language and their parents have zero idea of the language. They do not understand it and therefore they cannot communicate with their children. They're learning the main subjects, but along with the subjects, when you are being taught by a teacher a really good teacher, you are also also taking in part of their philosophy of life. That's why it's really important that we screen teachers. You know, we are, are we want our kids to have the best teacher. So there is that submission on a teacher, but you cannot help but have the philosophy infiltrating in along with that person. And I think we need to be very cautious and not focus on the gain, but focus on the long-term effects that this can have. We see China, you know, coming, the up and coming. I have great concerns because I feel like with this Chinese immersion, it's been a Trojan horse coming into America. And I, I, I don't know. I have. It, I just, it's very, it's very interesting. I think there's many questions to ask before putting, allowing your children to take this. And it's not like it's wrong in every situation. I do have a very good friend who I just admire so much who teaches Chinese immersion, but she is American. She's an American citizen, born and raised here. She did live in China, which is where she learned. She learned Chinese immersion by being immersed in China. And she is very, very concerned about this because she is saying that the people that come over here are communists and they are nationalists. They're not globally. They are nationalists and they love communist China and that their mission is to teach our children communist China, not only the language, but the culture. And what I find really interesting is in China, we know that they have, they only allow people to have one child. And because of that, they have a very declining population. So they don't have a continuation of their own population. 
their population will become extinct. And so I find it interesting that under the guise of doing business, they want us to learn Chinese when we have been doing business for all these hundreds of years, but they have learned English so we could do business with each other. And so what I see is what it appears to me is that this decision is a very financial decision. It is about a business decision in favor of businesses. It's not a decision made in support of our children and what's best for our children, nor is it a decision being in the best interest of our nation, of our country, because we should be nationalists where we are pro-America. There's nothing wrong with people being pro their nations. In fact, it's awesome. I love it when people from Argentina are pro-Argentina. When you're from Brazil, you love Brazil. So I don't think there's something wrong with that, but I think Americans should be pro-American. And I see this being very, really very damaging to our country. Well, and it's I very see- clear because the polls are showing that many, many of our youth who have gone through this education system for the last decade are actually, they, they, have, they don't have a loyalty. We're seeing it manifest itself, mm-hmm. but they do not have a loyalty to America and have been trained, you know, in a different, I mean, I, I vividly remember my mom's textbooks that she, um, that she would, she was screening some of the textbooks back in the seventies when I was in school and she would show these, uh, textbooks that were promoting anti-American, uh, philosophies, even there, they would have a Korean or a Vietnamese soldier story, but no American story in the in in the history books that I went to school with in Utah. So so we see this trend a lot of um Americans are switching to globalism but there is we are Americans and I love that we are nationalists. I'm glad you brought that up because as a Chinese American, I mean, I I have the heritage of China. I appreciate that heritage but I that heritage but I am extra grateful that I live in America. We are so very blessed and we have been given so much at such great sacrifice. And I would just encourage every single parent and grandparent out there, do your due diligence. It is truly our responsibility as parents that we have stewardship over the education. Let us not surrender that to an institution and give it over to someone else. And I hope that we will all remember that we are the guardians of our liberty. Thank you so much for listening. 